You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Before I get into the message for today, I do want to invite you to participate in something I'm going to be leading in the coming weeks. Uh, We've created a three-part training that we're calling Gospel Conversation Training. I mentioned this last week, and I want to mention again this week. Uh, Our big goal as a church this year is for every one of us who are part of this church to take next steps towards sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, with the people that God has put in our lives. And our ultimate goal is that 100 of us would have the opportunity and take the opportunity this year to invite someone to respond to the gospel. So every one of us can take a next step. And this training is a next step. So you can see the dates on the screen behind me. We're going to be doing that. Each of them are going to be after the second service. Um, on each of these Sundays. And in the training, we're going to answer these three really important questions. The first question is, who do I share with? Who do I share the gospel with? Uh, Sometimes it just isn't clear who we could even share this with. Either we just don't know anyone that might be open to hear about this, or we've already shared our faith with some people and they don't seem to be interested and we just don't know what to say next. So in this Uh, time, we're going to walk through some tools that will really help us think about and evaluate the people that God has put in our lives and how to pray for them and how to think about uh, what might be a next step in those conversations. The second uh, gathering, we're going to answer the question, what do I say? If you've ever tried to explain the gospel, uh, you've probably found yourself thinking, I I don't know how to explain this. Or even after you have, it's like, I don't think that was clear. Uh, So we're going to give you some simple tools that will help you articulate the good news very clearly. Then the last time we're going to get together is we're going to address the question, well, how do I say it? Particularly, how do I uh, share the gospel in a way that isn't pushy, isn't offensive, and isn't awkward? And we're going to talk about some easy ways just to get into conversations about spiritual matters and ways to minimize the awkwardness while we're respecting the people that we're talking to. So the training is going to be interactive. It's not just going to be talking and presenting ideas. There will be some of that, but it's going to be very interactive. The goal is to help you develop some not only awareness, but skills in taking next steps towards the gospel so you have a little more confidence as you begin to do this. So if you want to be a part of this, uh, Dale already did the connection card, but go ahead and sign up on the connection card, and that way we can plan uh, for that. So that's uh, coming up, and I want to make you aware of that. So let's go ahead and shift now to the message. Um, Recently, I was Uh, having a conversation with a friend of mine who's an atheist, and we were talking about why he believes what he believes and why I believe what I believe. And after the conversation, as I was driving away, I thought, you know what? I really love talking to atheists. I really enjoy those conversations whenever I get to have them. And I think there's several reasons. One of the reasons is we, we both tend to share a similar passion for what we believe. We believe different things, but we're both pretty passionate about what we believe. And we both love talking about God, which I find strange given the fact that atheists don't believe he exists, but they still just love talking slash arguing about the fact that he doesn't exist. Now, they have their intellectual reasons, of course, and I have my intellectual reasons. And what I've discovered over time is often behind their logic is a very personal reason for why they don't believe in God. And it usually goes something like this. Something tragic, something really bad happened in their life. And they cried out to God for help, and it didn't seem like anything happened. God didn't seem to help them at all. And so at that point, they either began to wonder or they concluded right then and there that God doesn't exist. 
and therefore their hearts were drawn to arguments that support that idea. Now, this particular friend, I, I don't know of a particular tragedy in his life, but he would say that the main reason he doesn't believe in God is because of all of the bad stuff that goes on in the world. And I would have to say they have a point. I think the best argument for the existence of God is the wonder and the beauty of creation. I think it takes a great deal of faith to look out on the stars, on a sunset, on a rainbow, the beauty of a, of a mountain, to look at that and just think that that's just random chance and that there's no mind, there's no great power behind that. That's a, that's a big step of faith, I think, on their part. But I think, conversely, the best argument against the existence of God is all of the evil in the world. I think it takes a great deal of faith to look out on the evil of this world, and particularly the evil and the bad that happens to us personally, and see the hand of God at work in the middle of all of this. Now, I assume that in this room, for the most part, we are theists and not atheists. I don't know why you'd come to a church if at least you don't think God might exist. But I also assume that we all have a story and probably several stories of moments in our life when someone wronged us or something bad happened to us, and we cry out to God for help, the God that we believe exists, and we couldn't perceive any help at all. Heaven appeared to be silent. And at that point, you probably didn't become an atheist then, but my guess is you maybe pulled back in your heart just a little bit from God. You became a little less sure about whether he's real or whether he's good or whether you really want to trust him. And so maybe now you're a little less committed because of that and the other moments like it in your relationship with God. Maybe you've become what Francis Schaeffer refers to as a practical atheist. Someone asks, oh no, I believe in God, but practically when you make decisions, there's just no evidence that you're factoring God into those decisions. You're a practical atheist, not a professing one. And it's probably partly because of these hurts, and God seemed to be silent. So in this series, what I want to do is, is answer this big question, where is God when the bad stuff happens? Where is God when people wrong us, when the circumstances of tragedy strike? And we're beginning today with the top two verses in the Bible that I think address this particular question. This is not a new question. We're going to look at one verse in the New Testament, and then we're going to look at the top verse, I think, in the Old Testament that addresses this question, and the story attached to that verse in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. First, the New Testament verse. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this verse has a claim and some conditions attached to that claim. The claim is that in all things, God works for the good. What that means is everything, particularly bad things. We, you know, when good things happen to us, we're not saying, God, why are you doing this? It's when the bad things happen. This says every bad thing that has happened to us and will happen to us 
will be looked back on with a nod of understanding and gratitude because we will see that it was actually part of how God brought good out of it. That's the claim. That's an amazing claim of tremendous power. But there are some conditions attached to this claim. This is for those who love him, who love God, and who have been called according to his purpose. So you might read this and think, well, so how much do I have to love God in order to get in on this claim? I mean, if if bad stuff happens to me, does that mean that I'm not loving God enough? Well, no, that's not what God is saying in this verse. This is not God making a deal. This is not God saying, all right, you love me this much, and I'll help you this much. That's not what this verse is saying. God is describing a different way to live the days of our life. There really are two basic ways you can live your life. There are a lot of options under those two basic categories. But you can either live for yourself or you can live for God. And when you live for yourself, you are the author of your own story. This is how we, we all start life. Every child is the star of their own story. And if they have siblings, that is a recipe for conflict because the siblings think they're the star of their own story. And therefore, family life can get interesting. And our goal as we grow up is, as we write the story of our life, we want to write a good story. We want a story that brings joy and happiness into our life and and is a good story. We don't set out to write tragedies or horrors. We want to write good stories with our lives. But in this world, every story has a lot of bad pages. Whether you want them or not, they are imposed on you. They're imposed on you by other people who do you wrong. They're imposed on you by circumstances that are bad. And what God does is God invites us all to set down our personal pamphlets, our own stories, and become a part of the bigger eternal story that he's writing. This is what he's offering in this verse. And if we do, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that every page of your life is going to be part of the story that is good. And you will see how not only it brought good, but it brought good into your life. But in order to do that, the big challenge is we have to stop being the star of the story. God has to become the star. He has to be the main character, not us. We're important, we're valued, but we now submit the pages of our days to the larger story and his larger purpose and the plot lines that he's developing. Now, when we do that, this shows up practically in two ways. These are the conditions. We love him. What that means practically is we put him first. The second condition is we live according to his purposes, to what he's doing, which we don't always know what that is. We define success by what God says is successful, not by what we think is successful. The challenge is we don't get to read the last page 
of how everything is going to work out. We're told that it will, and we've given some ideas, but we don't get to go straight to the end of the book. You know how you do that when you're in a movie that you're a little nervous and you just want to see if this ends okay, or if this is one of those movies that just gets worse and worse and you end up feeling terrible. Well, we, we can't do that. We can't skip to the end of our lives and see how our particular lives are going to work out. But if we live for the larger story, God says, it's going to work out. You're going to have to trust me. Now, again, because we can't go to the end of our lives, I don't know how that's going to work out in your particular circumstance or in my particular circumstance. Because the ink of our lives is not dry yet. We're still alive. But the Bible is full of stories of people who did love God, who did live for his purposes, who did offer the pages of their days to the larger story. And we get to see how it worked out for them as a point of encouragement for us who are in the middle of writing with the ink of our days. One of those stories is attached to the top Old Testament verse that speaks to how God brings good, when, particularly when people wrong us. And it's the story of Joseph. One of the great stories in the Bible. And the verse that I'm going to read is, is actually a summary statement that Joseph makes to his brothers near the end of his life, after all kinds of bad things that have hap has happened to him because of how his brothers have wronged him. His brothers sold him into slavery, which brought all kinds of bad things into his life. But this is what Joseph says to them in Genesis 50, verse 20. You, speaking to his brothers, you intended to harm me. But God intended something different. He intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph had a long line of people who had done him wrong. But he had one person whose intention was to do him good, and that person was God. And that overcame all of the wrong that was intended into Joseph's life. Now, Joseph, the story of Joseph contains three very practical perspectives that shift for us, when we, uh, when we stop writing our own personal pamphlets, starring us, and instead we start living for God's larger story. Now, in my experience, this decision is, there's a moment in time where you make this decision, you know what, I'm going to live my life for God. But then every morning I wake up, I still think I'm the star of my pamphlet. And I've got to remember, all right, the bigger story. How can I be a part of this? So these are three perspectives that I think will help us if you've decided to live your life for God's purposes and to love him, particularly when people do you wrong. Perspective number one, when people wrong you, God is moving you. He's getting you in position. Either he's actually physically moving you to the right place, the right time, or he's personally moving you. He's getting you moving on the inside, getting you ready for what he wants you to do. Now, whenever people wrong us, it feels like God has abandoned us. And we say, don't you see what they did? Don't you see what's going on? Why, why can't you write this wrong and make it right? But the truth is, oftentimes, God is getting us moving in the middle of this. You see, if we're going to be in God's story, we've got to be at the right place at the right time to play our part in what God wants us to do. But we usually don't get moving when things are good. 
When things are good, that's when we sit down and enjoy the good times. So God will often get us moving by allowing bad stuff to happen to us. And it may feel like God's out to get us. We may wonder if God's mad at us, but he's just simply getting us into position to play the part that he wants us to play for the good that he wants to bring at some future point. Now, the saving of many lives that Joseph refers to in this Genesis verse is referring to the millions that were going to die in a a massive famine that was coming in seven years. No one knew this famine was coming. God knew, though. And so God, in preparation to save the lives of millions, he picked the right man to oversee the massive preparation and distribution process that would need to be saved, need to be done to save all those lives. That person was Joseph. The problem is the only nation on the earth that had the power And the resources to prepare for a famine of this size was Egypt, the empire of the day. The problem is, there was no one in Egypt in power that would listen to God. You know, God communicated Joseph through dreams, but no one in Egypt was open to that idea. No one would listen to God. So, God chose Joseph. The problem is, Joseph wasn't in Egypt. Joseph Joseph was growing up in Palestine. So God had to get Joseph moving so he'd be in position in time. I mean, the famine's coming in seven years. How do you do that? Well, some really bad things came into Joseph's life. And these things didn't just happen while God was watching. God actually got the ball rolling on these. He did this by giving Joseph two dreams that made his brothers feel threatened. Here's what we read in Genesis 37, 5 through 11. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. We'll talk a little bit later about why all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheave rose up, stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Well, that's, you know how brothers are going to respond to that. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Well, then he had another dream. God's the one that's initiating these dreams. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I I had another dream. And this time, the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, in the ancient world, birth order meant more than it does now. It was the firstborn that would inherit the family estate. The other siblings would then serve under the firstborn son. Now, Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons. He's way down the line. So you can see why these two dreams caused such a big stir. The only way in the ancient world you could advance was if a sibling older than you died. So when Joseph told them 
these dreams, it would have been heard as a threat. Add to this the fact that Joseph, as you read the whole story, Joseph was clearly his father's favorite, which is why it says in these dreams a couple times, this made them hate Joseph even more than they already did. So these dreams prompt Joseph's brothers to decide that it's time to respond to this irritating little brother. And they, well, they way overreacted. Verses 17 through 20, a few verses later. Joseph went after his brothers. Joseph went looking for his brothers to bring him something from his father. Found them near Dothan. They saw him in a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. We'll see what comes of his dreams. Wow. I mean, I'm the oldest of three brothers, and we fought a lot. But I don't remember ever plotting their death. You know, it, it sounds to me that what Joseph needed was like, you know, a good head noogie from his brothers or something, but, but not death. Well, Reuben, the oldest one, who actually is in charge, is not a, in favor of this killing him plan, so he convinces them to sell Joseph to a passing caravan, sell him into slavery instead. Now, this, this is not just a bad day. This, this is evil. This is horrible. When Joseph said in that verse we read that they intended him harm, they really did. But God intended Joseph good. And all the harm that his brothers could deal to him would not overcome the good that God intended for Joseph. Well, then why didn't God stop this? Why didn't he intervene and stop this tremendous injustice and evil? Well, it's because Joseph wasn't in position yet for the great story that God was writing. He had some miles to travel and some people to meet. Next stop on God's goodness tour was a man named Potiphar who bought Joseph once he arrived in Egypt. Now, Potiphar was a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's government. He was actually the captain of the guard, the one in charge of providing protection for Pharaoh. And this is no accident that Pharaoh, or that Potiphar, rather, happened to be the one to buy Joseph. There are no accidents in the story that God writes. It says God is at work in all things, that New Testament verse. It's not that he's He's working really hard and doing his best, and every once in a while a few details slip through. No, he is working everything for his purposes. So the brothers, they are the ones that got angry. They're the ones that did evil. But in a way that is impossible for us to understand how God does this, it perfectly fit into God's plan. At the slave auction, Joseph could have been sold to anyone there. But Potiphar bought him. For his own reasons, we don't know why he bought Joseph out of all the slaves that were at that auction, but he did. But later we see, oh, that was, that was brilliant. Because God was behind the scenes, working his plan. And while Joseph works for Potiphar, he learns all kinds of things. Eventually, he rises to manage the entire household of this high-ranking official. Well, apparently, Joseph's 
a good-looking guy, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He turns her down. And so in anger, she accuses him of rape, and Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison. Another person really wronged Joseph. You accuse a slave of rape, and that's it. Why did God not stop this? Was God mad at Joseph? No, Joseph did the right thing. Actually, he says, I I can't sleep with you because it would dishonor my God. He does the right thing. Well, then is God not really? Is 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 this one of those details that's just beyond God's reach? No. Sure looked like that probably to Joseph. But God had someone else for Joseph to meet. And that someone was in this particular prison at that particular time. So God had to get Joseph to move from Potiphar's household to this prison. Now, Potiphar's wife did what she did out of her own will and out of evil. But God was supervising the larger story. Now, this was not just any prison that Joseph went to. It appears to be the prison where political prisoners went. And because this was a government led by one man, those kind of governments usually have prisons that are full of political prisoners. And this was the case here. And so because of Potiphar's position, this is where Joseph went to prison. If Joseph had been sold to anyone else other than a high-ranking official in Pharaoh's court, Joseph, the slave, would have gone to a very different prison, but he went to this one. And it's in this prison that he meets Pharaoh's butler. Now, to be a butler at this time meant that you were in charge of the the safety of all the food and all the drink for the royal family. It's a position of high trust. And we don't know why this butler fell out of favor, but something happened that angered Pharaoh. And as tyrannical leaders do, they put the person in prison. And so this butler's there in prison, and Joseph gets to know this butler. It seems like they become friends. And then one night, this butler has a dream that's so vivid and so strong, he tells Joseph about this dream. And Joseph says, well, let me see if God will help me interpret this dream. And God gives Joseph insight, and Joseph interprets the dream and tells him that what the dream means is in a, in a short time, his fortunes are going to be reversed, and Pharaoh's going to not only get him out of jail, but he's going to reinstate him into his trusted position as the butler. So that actually happens. And as the butler is leaving, he promises to Joseph that he will bring his case before Pharaoh. But he doesn't. Two years go by. Joseph's still in prison. But then one night, in God's timing, God brings a dream to Pharaoh that is so disturbing and so vivid that he wakes up in terror. And he knows something supernatural is behind this dream. And so he goes to all of the wise people that, that are in the court, tells them this dream, and none of them have a clue what it means. But now suddenly the butler hearing of this says, I know a guy who seems to be able to interpret dreams like this. He tells Pharaoh, 
Pharaoh calls for Joseph. Joseph is brought in, told the dream, and he interprets the dream, which is God's prediction of the famine that is coming and the preparation that is needed. Pharaoh is so impressed with the clarity and the wisdom of Joseph that he decides on the spot to put Joseph in charge of the empire under him. So in one day, Joseph went from prison to number two in power in the biggest nation of the day. No one saw that coming. That's the kind of stories that God can write. But you see, all of the previous moves that looked so awful and were characterized by so many people doing Joseph wrong, they were all necessary pieces to get Pharaoh to bring Joseph on at the right time. So when people wrong you, God is moving you. Either he's moving you to change in some way or he's actually moving you physically in some way. The second principle is this. When people wrong you, God is growing you. I wish we could grow just because we want to grow. But that's almost never the way it works. God's purpose, you see, was not just to save Joseph's life. As Joseph said in that verse we read earlier, his purpose was the saving of many lives. And this is one of the challenges we have when we define good. Especially in our culture, we are such individuals, we almost can't think beyond our own selfishness. And so we define good as what's good for us today, or maybe even like this hour. But God defines good as what's going to eventually be good for a lot, a lot of people. He wants to use you and me to bring blessing and good to lots of people. That's how he defines good. So in order to prepare for the coming famine and the saving of millions of lives, Joseph had to become the right kind of leader. So God enrolled Joseph in a 13-year executive training program for famine relief. So not only was he getting Joseph in the right place to meet the right people, he was growing and training Joseph along the way. As Joseph worked for Potiphar, he learned how to manage a large estate. That's great training for the massive management tasks to come. What Joseph ended up doing was setting up a program where for the seven years that were going to come before the famine, we're going to be bumper crop years. So he set up a program where all of the crops, a percentage of it had to be brought in and storage facilities developed. And then for seven years of the famine, the world at that point lived off of what Joseph had set aside. That's, that's a complex management task. So he learned, first of all, at Potiphar's household. And then he was accused of rape. Why? My guess is that God was preparing him for politics. You know, if he was going to oversee the distribution of food for millions for years, just imagine the political pressure and the side deals he'd be tempted by. So God tested Joseph's character. And under pressure, he honored God. 
He was going to be what almost no politician is, someone who couldn't be bought or influenced. He was going to be a man of integrity. He learned that in that moment and in the ones that followed. And then in prison, once again, like he did with Potiphar, he just worked hard and God blessed what he did and he rose to become the top administrator of the prison as a prisoner. The warden put him in charge of the prison. And he learned more about leading. He learned about leading politicians. Remember what prison this was? Former politicians. It can't be easy leading a prison full of former politicians. I, I can't imagine a tougher leadership task. <laughs> God was preparing him to lead a bunch of politicians who had been passed over for his promotion. See, we read the story and think, wow, Joseph went from jail to number two in the world in one moment? That's amazing. Just think of all of the political establishment of Egypt. What do you think they thought of that? Wait, what? My boss is who? My boss's boss's boss is who? Uh-uh, I don't think so. I didn't get into this position. I didn't spend this much money. I didn't acquire this much power to let some slave from Palestine tell me what to do. Well, it was in that prison that Joseph learned how to lead and probably build the framework of relationships that really helped him manage. If he was going to oversee the distribution of food for millions for years, he needed this. It would have been easy for Joseph to feel like God was picking on him. But what we have to understand, it's always about more than the individual. It was to accomplish the saving of many lives. God never wastes the bad things that happen in our life. We don't understand it, but that's because we're not the author if we're living for the bigger story. In the bad, he's preparing us to be a blessing to others. And this brings us to the third point. Whenever people wrong you, whenever the bad comes, you have to pick your story or repick your story. The big question you have to answer at this point is, am I writing my story, or am I willing to be a part of God's bigger story? When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they told their father that he had been killed by a wild animal. Now, that was their original plan when they were going to kill him, so they stuck with that one. Now, how would you think a father would respond? A father of a favored son would respond. Joseph's father's name is Jacob, and he was struck down at the core of his being as any of us fathers would be. I mean, I can't imagine what would hurt more and feel more wrong than the death of your child. And so we read of Jacob, Joseph's father's response, in Genesis 37-35. He gets news of the death of his son, Joseph. And we read this, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. And it turns out this wasn't just an emotional outburst. This is what Jacob did. 
he spent the next 14 years basically in deep depression. Now, I understand that response. But then, at year 14, he learns that his son isn't dead after all. In fact, he's number two in Egypt. And he's actually God's provision to them in the middle of this famine. That is great news. I mean, just imagine the heart of a father hearing that a son that he thought was dead for 14 years is now alive. I can't think of a better day. But here's the problem. There's nothing now that Jacob can do to get back those 14 years of pouting and anger and depression. And this is the way life is. It comes to us a day at a time. As I said, we don't get to go to read the last page of how our life is going to work out. It just comes at a day at a time. We can't see the entire plan of God. And therefore, we don't know how this loss or this pain or that wrong is going to fit into anything good. We're, we're just in the story. We don't write the story. And the bad thing, the wrong thing, is sitting on our plate now. And we have to decide what kind of life are we going to live? What story are we writing? Do we want to live the pamphlet life where we demand that everyone, especially God, brings good into our life? Or do we want to take the, the gift of time and turn our days into service to God so he will eventually bring good out of it? In my experience, it sometimes, well, oftentimes, it takes a long time to see how any good can come out of the wrong that people do us. For me, it's usually been kind of like it was for Joseph. Somewhere between 10 and 15 years, I begin to see, okay, I can see how that, I can see why that was needed. I, I can see how that's good. And to be honest, there's some things in my life where I look back on it and say, I don't get it. I don't, I Maybe when we read the great story in heaven, well, I know then I will, but now I don't. But if I spend a day today lost in anger or sadness, anger at God, sadness, pouting over what's on my plate, I have just wasted a day. I can't get that day back. Now, I'm, it's okay to be sad. I'm not saying you should never be sad. Jacob spent 14 years sitting at home, refusing to be consoled. And what I've discovered, in most cases, my anger and my sadness has been like Jacob's. It was a waste of my time. Later on, I saw the good that God was doing. And I wished I hadn't spent all of that time angry at God or pouting over how badly I was treated. So the bad thing is on your plate. The injustice is, is on you. And the question is, how are you going to respond to it? The answer shapes the story of your life. 
Now, we think that if God loves us, he'll make us happy today. But you see, God's love is always attached to God's plan, his larger story. He's up to something, something good. But not until the final chapter is written where we see exactly how that's all going to weave together. So every day we wake up, we have to decide who's the star of the story that's going to be written with the ink of our life today. If it's us, then our days are very precarious. Every day, teeters on the edge of, is this a good day or a bad day? But if we're writing, we're willing to be part of God's story, then our days are precious, not precarious. It's another day that we get to add the ink of our lives to the great story. All of the pamphlets, no one's reading those. For all of eternity, we will be reading the great story. Now, that doesn't mean that the days are without tears. Once the famine hits, Joseph's brothers travel to Egypt in search of food, and they are brought before Joseph to ask for food to feed their starving families. They don't recognize Joseph. Now, you know, you couldn't ask for a, a more perfect revenge moment. And if you were writing a movie, I, I promise you, of all the movies you're going to see this year, none of them as good as this story. I mean, this is like, oh, this is perfect. Now they need him? Oh, man, this is going to be sweet, the moment of revenge. But at the sight of his brothers, Joseph just breaks down and starts crying. And we don't know for sure. I don't think it was tears of, oh, I really missed you. Because he goes into an adjacent room, and now, you know, he's part of the palace, so he's got room. But it, it's recorded that he cries so loud that the neighbors are wondering, what's going on? So what that means is he's probably wailing in grief. What his brothers did really, really hurt him, even years later. But he regains his composure, he comes back into the room, and he reveals who he is. And of course, they're terrified. They assume they're about to get the long overdue judgment that they all deserve. And then Joseph says this, you intended to harm me. Yes, you did. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God, the great story writer, is still writing a story. And Joseph doesn't have any ink to add to it. I do. You do. What's the story going to be? Let's pray. Father, there's a lot of bad comes to us. People wrong us, and it hurts. It brings tears. It brings anger. It brings a lot of sadness. Father, I thank you for the promise and the offer, the promise that if we love you, if we're willing to live for your purposes, you will weave everything together for good. I pray that you'd help us in the middle of whatever bad is sitting on our plate. You would help us to not allow, us, allow it to derail us and hold back and not love you and not love the people you put in our life. 
We thank you for the privilege of just pay, playing even a small part in the great story that we read for all of eternity. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.